0: U.S. persons with foreign bank accounts are required to file an annual report of foreign bank and financial accounts, commonly known as an FBAR or FBAR. Alexandru Bittner, a dual citizen of the United States and Romania, failed to report his interests in his foreign bank accounts on annual FBAR forms, as required by the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970. So the United States government fined him $10,000 for each unreported account each year from 2007 to 2011 for a grand total of $2.72 million. Ouch. You might say that Mr. Bittner was feeling a little foobar over his F-Bars at this point. Of course, Bittner challenged the fines in court. The district court held that a $10,000 maximum penalty attaches to each failure to file an annual F-Bar, not to each account to be reported on the F-Bar. So it reduced Bittner's fines to $50,000 total. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit reversed, holding that each account he failed to report indeed counted as a separate reporting violation. In this case, the court was asked, is a violation under the Bank Secrecy Act the failure to file an annual report of foreign bank and financial accounts, or is there a separate violation for each individual account that was not properly reported. Let's see what the court decided in the February 28, 2023 opinion of the court in Bitner v. United States. Justice Gorsuch announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to Parts 1, 2A, 2B, and 3, and an opinion with respect to Part 2C in which Justice Jackson joins. The Bank Secrecy Act and its implementing regulations require certain individuals to file annual reports with the federal government about their foreign bank accounts. The statute imposes a maximum $10,000 penalty for non-willful violations of the law. But recently, a question has arisen. Does someone who fails to file a timely or accurate annual report commit a single violation subject to a single $10,000 penalty? Or does that person commit separate violations and incur separate $10,000 penalties for each account not properly recorded within a single report? The answer makes a difference, especially for immigrants who hold accounts abroad and Americans who make their lives outside the country. On one view, penalties accrue on a per-report basis. So, for example, a single late-filed report disclosing the existence of 10 accounts may yield a maximum fine of $10,000. On another view, Penalties multiply on a per-account basis, so the same report can invite a fine of $100,000, even if the individual's foreign holdings, or total net worth, do not approach that amount. Because the Ninth Circuit read the law one way and the Fifth Circuit the other, we agreed to take this case. Part 1 The Bank Secrecy Act, or BSA, does not make it illegal to hold foreign accounts, nor does the BSA tax those accounts. To the contrary, the federal government has acknowledged that U.S. persons maintain overseas financial accounts for a variety of legitimate reasons, including convenience and access. As relevant here, the BSA simply requires those who possess foreign accounts with an aggregate balance of more than $10,000 to file an annual report on a form known as an FBAR, the Report of Foreign Bank and Financial Accounts. These reports are designed to help the government trace funds that may be used for illicit purposes and identify unreported income that may be subject to taxation separately under the terms of the Internal Revenue Code. The facts of the Ninth and 5th Circuit cases help illuminate the particular question about the BSA now before us. The first dispute involved Jane Boyd, an American citizen who held 13 relevant accounts in the United Kingdom. The amounts in those accounts increased significantly after her father died in 2009, and she deposited her inheritance. Because the aggregate amount in Ms. Boyd's accounts exceeded $10,000 in 2009, she should have filed an F bar in 2010. Neglecting to do so, she corrected the error in 2012, submitting a complete and accurate report at that time. The government acknowledged that Ms. Boyd's violation of the law was non-willful, Still, the government said it had the right to impose a $130,000 penalty, $10,000 for each of her 13 late-reported accounts. Ms. Boyd challenged the penalty in court, where she argued that her failure to file a single timely F-bar subjected her to a single maximum penalty of $10,000, The District Court rejected that argument and sided with the government. But in time, the Ninth Circuit vindicated Ms. Boyd's view, holding that the BSA authorizes only one non-willful penalty when an untimely but accurate FBAR is filed, no matter the number of accounts. More recently, the same question arose in the Fifth Circuit In a case involving Alexandru Bittner. Born and raised in Romania, Mr. Bittner immigrated to the United States at a young age in 1982. He worked first as a dishwasher and later as a plumber, and along the way became a naturalized citizen. After the fall of communism, Mr. Bittner returned to Romania in 1990 where he launched a successful business career. Like many dual citizens, he did not appreciate that U.S. law required him to keep the government apprised of his overseas financial accounts, even while he lived abroad. Shortly after returning to the United States in 2011, Mr. Bittner learned of his reporting obligations and engaged an accountant to help him prepare the required reports, covering five years from 2007 through 2011. But the story did not end there. The government identified a problem in the late-filed reports. While those reports provided details about Mr. Bittner's largest account, they neglected to address 25 or more other accounts over which he had signatory authority or in which he had a qualifying interest. After the government informed him of his deficiency, Mr. Bittner hired a new accountant who helped him file corrected FBARs for each year in question. Under governing regulations, filers with signatory authority over or qualifying interest in fewer than 25 accounts must provide details about each account but individuals with 25 or more accounts need only check a box and disclose the total number of accounts. Instead of employing that expediency, however, Mr. Bittner and his new accountant volunteer details for each and every one of his accounts. 61 accounts in 2007, 51 in 2008, 53 in 2009, and 2010, and 54 in 2011. The question then turned to what penalty Mr. Bittner should pay. The government did not contest the accuracy of Mr. Bittner's new filings, nor did the government suggest that his previous errors were willful. But because the government took the view that non-willful penalties apply to each account not accurately or timely reported, and because Mr. Bittner's late-filed reports for 2007 through 2011 collectively involved 272 accounts, the government thought a fine of $2.72 million was in order. Like Ms. Boyd before him, Mr. Bittner challenged his penalty in court arguing that the BSA authorizes a maximum penalty for non-willful violations of $10,000 per report, not $10,000 per account. As he put it, an individual's failure to file five reports in a timely manner might invite a penalty of $50,000, but it cannot support a penalty running into the millions. The District Court agreed with Mr. Bittner's reading of the law, but the Fifth Circuit upheld the government's assessment. Part 2 With those facts in mind, the question before us boils down to this. Does the BSA's $10,000 penalty for non-willful violations accrue on a per-report or a per-account basis. Mr. Bittner urges us to agree with the Ninth Circuit and hold that the law authorizes a single $10,000 fine for each untimely or inaccurate report. The government defends the judgment of the Fifth Circuit and asks us to hold that a new $10,000 penalty attaches to each account not timely or accurately disclosed within a report. Section A. To resolve who has the better reading of the law, we begin with the terms of the most immediately relevant statutory provisions. 31 U.S.C. Section 5314 and Section 5321. The first delineates an individual's legal duties under the BSA. The second outlines the penalties that follow for failing to discharge those duties. Section 5314 provides that the Secretary of the Treasury shall require certain persons to keep records, file reports, or keep records and file reports, when they make a transaction or maintain a relation with a foreign financial agency. When it comes to the duty to file reports, the relevant duty in our case, the statute says that reports shall contain information about the identity and address of participants in a transaction or relationship, the legal capacity in which a participant is acting, and the identity of real parties in interest, along with a description of the transaction. The law also directs the secretary to prescribe the way and the extent to which reports must be filed. Immediately, one thing becomes clear. Section 5314 does not speak of accounts or their number, The word account does not even appear. Instead, the relevant legal duty is the duty to file reports. Of course, those reports must include various kinds of information about an individual's foreign transactions or relationships. But whether a report is filed late, whether a timely report contains one mistake about the address of the participants in a transaction, or whether a report includes multiple willful errors in its description of transactions, the duty to supply a compliant report is violated. Put another way, the statutory obligation is binary. Either one files a report in the way and to the extent the secretary prescribes, or one does not. Multiple willful errors about specific accounts in a single report, may confirm a violation of section 5314, but even a single non-willful mistake is enough to pose a problem. One way or another, section 5314 is violated. The only distinction the law draws between these cases concerns the appropriate penalty. That's where section 5321 comes in. As a baseline, Section 5321A-5 authorizes the Secretary to impose a civil penalty of up to $10,000 for any violation of Section 5314. Some call this the non-willful penalty provision, and here again, one thing is immediately apparent. The law still does not speak of accounts or their number. Instead, the statute pegs the quantity of non-willful penalties to the quantity of violations. And, as we have seen, Section 5314 provides that a violation occurs when an individual fails to file a report consistent with the statute's commands. So, multiple deficient reports may yield multiple $10,000 penalties, and even a seemingly simple deficiency in a single report may expose an individual to a $10,000 penalty. But in all cases, penalties for non willful violations accrue on a per report, not a per account, basis. To be sure, The statute's penalty provisions do not stop there. Section 5321 goes on to say that if an individual willfully violates Section 5314, he may face a maximum penalty of $100,000. The statute then adds an even more specific rule for a subclass of willful violations those that involve a failure to report the existence of an account or any identifying information required to be provided with respect to an account. In cases like that, the law authorizes the secretary to impose a maximum penalty of either $100,000 or 50% of the balance in the account at the time of the violation, whichever is greater, So here at last, the law does tailor penalties to accounts, but the statute does so only for a certain category of cases that involve willful violations, not for cases like ours that involve only non-willful violations. No surprise, the government seeks to turn this feature of the law to its advantage Because Congress explicitly authorized per-account penalties for some willful violations, the government asks us to infer that Congress meant to do so for analogous non-willful violations as well. But in truth, this line of reasoning cuts against the government. When Congress includes particular language in one section of a statute, but omits it from a neighbor we normally understand that difference in language to convey a difference in meaning the government's interpretation defies this traditional rule of statutory construction the government's problem repeats itself too section 5321 a5b2 contains a reasonable cause exception That exception allows an individual to escape a penalty, say, for filing late, only if his violation was non-willful due to reasonable cause, and the report he eventually files accurately reflects each and every account, all of which supplies further evidence that when Congress wished to tie sanctions to account-level information— It knew exactly how to do so. Congress said that penalties for certain willful violations may be measured on a per-account basis. Congress said that a person may invoke the reasonable cause exception only on a showing of per-account accuracy. But the one thing Congress did not say is that the government may impose non-willful penalties on a per-account basis. Conspicuously, the one place in the statute where the government needs per account language to appear is the one place it does not. In the end, the government's per account theory faces not just a single expressio unius challenge, but two. The dissent founders on the same shoals. It suggests that the pattern of account specific language in the willful penalty provision and the reasonable cause exception, connotes that the non-willful penalty provision must operate on a per-account basis. But again, just because two provisions in the law are similar does not mean we may ignore differences found in a third. Seeking a way around the problem, the dissent points to the fact that that even a single qualifying foreign bank account triggers the duty to file a report and the fact that a compliant report must contain a list of information about bank addresses and the like. These features of the law, the dissent says, underscore that non-willful violations accrue per account, but that simply does not follow The fact that a person has a duty to file a report or provide certain information in a report does not tell us whether penalties for non-willful violations accrue per report or multiply per account without regard to an individual's net worth or foreign holdings. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up right where we left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.